China thinks that the next two months are just going to be a storm of constant anti-China action coming from the administration, and that that's going to define the lame duck period. Welcome to the Rain Insights podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. U.S. President Donald Trump recently issued an executive order stating that China is exploiting U.S. capital investments to fund its military growth and ambitions. The order, which goes into effect in January 2021, bans any transaction in publicly traded securities that the U.S. finds could support the Chinese military-industrial complex. In this podcast... Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with Emily de la Briere and Nathan Pikarsik of Horizon Advisory about what impact the order could have on U.S. financial services. Emily and Nate, it's a great honor to have you. Uh, on November 12, 2020, uh, President Trump issued an executive order prohibiting investments in publicly traded Chinese companies that are connected to the Chinese military. And the order specifically designated 31 Chinese companies that were determined by the U.S. Department of Defense and other agencies to support the People's Liberation Army. And previously, uh, there had been prior lists, I believe, in June and August of 2020. And the restrictions take effect on January 11th as a legal matter. Reputationally, they're taking effect uh, as we speak. And uh, it will be sort of important for a wide variety of U.S. persons and corporations to understand uh, exactly what's happening and why it's happening. So maybe you I know you've done a lot of work in this space and you continue to do a lot of research um, into Chinese companies and entities. Maybe you can unpack this for us and tell us what's happening and why it's happening. Yeah, thank you, David. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to contribute to the dialogue on this topic. Um, I think the first point to make is that this was not some fly-by-night movement. In fact, the the action that was taken is something that um, dates all the way back to a requirement placed on the Department of Defense in 1999. So in the 1999 National Defense Authorization Act, the funding bill for the Department of Defense Again, 20 years ago in 1999, there was a requirement to start generating these lists of Chinese companies that are affiliated with the the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. Um, Just this summer, as you noted, um, was the first time that there was a public release of any such list. Um, And it's been reviewed. and, And finally, now this action taken by the White House sort of adds teeth in terms of enforcement of what the potential penalties for these companies who um, are documented as supporting the People's Liberation Army, as well as documented as having assets and operations that operate in or connect to the United States. Um, so I think that it's important to understand that this is coming from um, a tasking that's been out there for some time, um, but certainly is being understood in the moment as as the latest salvo in Trump's trade war, if you will, um, and certainly seems to fit within the rising escalation of of, uh, economic um, blows between the U.S. and China. Nate, thanks. Emily, if you can maybe give us um, some context in terms of what individual investors, but also corporations have to be thinking about now as a result. And uh, obviously the list is there. Uh, but some of the connectivity to these companies is not necessarily readily apparent. Yes, absolutely. 
This list really brings to the fore for investors um, the question of China's military-civil fusion program and a whole range of affiliated risks that haven't necessarily been factored into the calculus before. Chinese companies are on this list and risk being on future expansions of the list because of connections to China's direct military apparatus, but also to its military-civil fusion strategy, which is this broader program by which China seeks to integrate military and civil resources, actors, and positioning for the sake of comprehensive national power. Um, and that means that companies that might otherwise be treated as commercial or purely civilian players actually now constitute a risk that the U.S. national security apparatus is controlling for, and therefore that investors need to be concerned about. Um, and then the next two beats from that broad framing are that there are likely to be, at the very least in the remainder of the Trump administration, and potentially even in the Biden administration, extensions of this list of um, military-linked entities. So it could get longer. There are any number of other Chinese companies that, based on those that are currently on the list, are eligible for extensions of it. And then the next thing to note is that every one of the companies on that list has a number, really up to hundreds, of subsidiaries that in some cases are mapped out, in some cases aren't. Um, so it's not investors need not only to be looking at their risks of direct exposure to the companies that are named, but also their risk of entanglement with subsidiaries or JVs or partnerships of those companies. You bring up a good point just in terms of um, the relationships. And if I can just sort of quote uh, from the executive order itself, um, it it prohibits transactions in any securities that are derivative of or are designed to provide invest, investment exposure to such securities. And what you're suggesting, Emily, is that um, the ability to comply with these new sanctions are not necessarily a turnkey operation, but will require a certain degree of diligence and vigilance. Obviously, the government will put out certain information, but it seems to be foisting upon companies and investors the obligation to figure out whether there is connection with these 31 entities. Absolutely. And to be ahead of the game, should there be more oversight on that level from the government or, again, extension of this form of oversight and regulatory involvement? Now, let me ask both of you, Nate, you, you talked about the fact that, you know, this is not necessarily a uh, new list, but certainly, you know, um, as a result of U.S.-Chinese relations, um, more companies are hitting the sanctions list coming out of China. And the question I have is why here, why now? Uh, with these companies in particular. Why this executive order, obviously post the election, prior to what appears to be uh, an administration change? Why was such an order put out? I, I can't assume to, to understand exactly how the White House um, came up with the calculus to release this action, but I think that there's a, a political logic and I think there's also a strategic logic that comes through and I can comment on the strategic logic, which is I think there's been a, a broad awakening to the role that U.S. capital markets have played in the maturation of 
Chinese industry. Um, and I think there's obvious and, and frankly, bipartisan support for um, broader awareness of the role that U.S. capital markets have played in the maturation of Chinese um, industry, particularly the sectors of industry that are strategic by definition from the Chinese and and, and as it concerns our national security apparatus um, and, and an appetite for taking action to at least be aware um, to generate some regulatory and, and oversight mechanisms for enforcement. And I think we even had um, last year uh, an action taken, a legislative proposal advanced, um, again, in a bipartisan fashion from um, Senators Rubio and Senator Shaheen that was meant to restrict um, participation of U.S. federal retirement funds in Chinese equities. Um, and that was a, a pretty broad move. It ultimately, I don't think, panned out, but I think there was bipartisan, bipartisan support for that type of action. So when we see this um, executive order, which is focused much more narrowly on the specific set of Chinese military companies, it strikes me that there is a, a strategic logic and it's one that may um, sort of prevail the transition in, in the administration and, and continue through the, the Biden administration. So as we look at this and, and the effective date, which is January 11th, uh, you actually talked about bipartisan support. And this is an executive order, which, of course, could be revoked or changed by the new administration. What is the likelihood that this will remain in effect? And at least as I was surveying the landscape, I didn't hear uh, any, at least expressions of opposition to it. Uh, from the Democratic side. So this seemed to be something that, you know, both sides um, were at least quietly supportive of. Again, it was an executive order. This was not an, an act of Congress. But how do, you, how do you look at this in terms of, um, we'll call it bipartisan support, and the likelihood that this will remain in effect uh, when there is a new administration? I think the political stakes that have been assigned to this specific action are such that it will be difficult to rescind it because doing so will be framed in a way such that the new administration is deciding to support the Chinese military, which we have, again, bipartisan support and a range of national defense authorities and actions that have oriented around, oriented our Department of Defense and national security apparatus around the realities of great power competition with China. Um, so I, I think there's a, a good likelihood that it survives um, the political transition. Um, there's always a chance that um, the entire sort of trade war um, apparatus is thrown out because it's been sort of tied to the Trump administration. But I really think that we'll see from, from the Biden camp recognition that this this threat is real and salient and has bipartisan support, these types of actions. So I would err on the side of expecting it to survive through the political transition. Emily, let me um, address a couple of points that you made. And again, these are uh, this is an executive order. I'm not seeing much international uh, support for it. Capital can flow from a variety of different uh, venues these days around the globe. From a practical standpoint, what's the point that's being made from this, and is it going to have an impact? And if so, what are you seeing? Yeah, that's the big question here. So this executive order 
is probably the first sign, the first concrete sign that the military company list um, could have teeth. But it's really just a first sign, and it hasn't, it's not necessarily clear what the concrete implications of it will be, if any. Um, they're saying that there are concrete implications, but the markets didn't didn't respond to the executive order when it was issued. And it comes at the same time as China is starting a multilateral offensive, if you will. Um, so we're suddenly faced with the twin questions of, is the U.S. actually going to enforce this and enforce this in any concrete way? And also, what does this mean if the U.S. doesn't get allies and partners on board? Um, so I think what that means, at least from the individual investor angle, is there is absolutely the concern or the risk that um, the U.S. take, at the very least, like tactical um, potentially scattershot action on this so that there you know, there are concrete implications. Um, it's not necessarily the root of a larger strategic framework with which the U.S. responds to China's weaponization of capital and integration. Uh, it did get headlines, and, and trust me, no shortage of law firms circulating memos to their clients. And what I'm really trying to understand here is what might have triggered this now, uh, particularly after our elections and with a new administration likely coming in? And is it concerned from what you can tell around Taiwan? Is it concerned around certain trade packs that you know China is entering into in Asia? Is it con- hu- concern about human rights uh, inside China? Is it something broader? Because as I look at this, you know, the questions that many of our clients have is, okay, why now? Why an executive order here that, you know, may not have much of an impact and may only, you know, sort of worsen the relationships uh, between the two countries? So just as Nate said, he wasn't going to profess to understand um, the inner workings and inner decision making of the administration. I'm going to toe that same line, but... I'll tell you what China's perspective appears to be right now, um, and that's that based on you know, Chinese media and you know, general discussion, it seems like China thinks that the next two months are just going to be a storm of constant anti-China action coming from the administration and that that's going to define the lame duck period. I mean, Beijing calls this like the final Trump administration craziness. And it's absolutely what they're expecting. And they saw in this executive order um, a sign that that was actually happening. Of course, they're also gambling that with the Biden administration will come for the U.S.-China relationship some greater degree of stability and calm. And that, and I'm you know, quoting Xinhua here, so forgive me, but that you know China has the capital to withstand this craziness. Whether that's true is a whole other question. We have seen a little bit of tit for tat. We've seen you know, trying to impose their own set of tariffs and put restrictions on U.S. companies. Um, what do you think the response will be, in fact? Or you think we've, we have that response? It'll be basically to wait it out for two months and see what happens with the new administration. 
I think that's a great question, David. Um, and I, I think that's the immediate response um, will likely follow that path that China will aim to wait out this storm of craziness that's coming from the United States while also trying to engage with the incoming Biden administration to position themselves to um, reset the relationship, if you will. Um, at, at the same time, I would expect that it's entirely possible that the Chinese domestic political audience will require some sort of response at some point if there are a series of these actions taken over over the next several weeks. And I think the most immediate um, direct reaction could be an expansion of a set of export quotas or sanctions on U.S. companies. Um, so I think over the summer, just as the initial DOD list of Chinese military companies was released, we saw sanctions placed by the Chinese government on Lockheed Martin, and then a series of sanctions that expanded to a broader set of U.S. aerospace and defense companies. Um, and I, I think that may be the recourse that we could anticipate um, through the end of this calendar year. Um, and that would, I think, likely be caused by a domestic political audience in China that would have an appetite for seeing some sort of at least nominal response while I would also anticipate that Chinese diplomats would be hard at work at, at trying to position themselves for some sort of broader reset of the relationship in Washington. To quote Groucho Marx, I resemble that remark. And when you think, think about the U.S. and its own military industrial complex and publicly listed companies that are involved with the military and the defense, um, China has taken action involving some of our aviation and defense contractors in terms of uh, their own business activities. And, um, you know, noting that the president stated that the, I'll, I'll read the quote in relevant part, the PRC compels civilian Chinese companies to support its military and intelligence activities and exploits U.S. investors to finance the development and modernization of its military. And at some point, as you said, you know, China looked perhaps back across the ocean and said, you know, well, we're looking at your economy and we see what's going on there, too. And so, Emily, um, just in terms of because I know you monitor social media and 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 coverage in China, uh, what is what is the local response to this? And are they possibly pointing out our capital market structure and how our investors end up putting capital against our many of our companies that are involved with uh, supporting the military. So that's the classic on social media and like more informal media response you'll get um, from Chinese discourse up to U.S. accusations about military civil fusion and about the degree to which uh, China involves its commercial and civilian companies and even foreign capital in its military apparatus. You get a lot of language about um, the U.S. doing the same and you know, the hypocrisy of the U.S., which, you know, just quick sidebar here, is not accurate and it's an entirely different system. Um, but, I mean, one of the things, or you know, the thing here that I think is probably most interesting about how China responds to and uses capital markets um, as opposed to like this U.S. response here is if we look back at the beginning of China's response to COVID, um, you get a really strong example of 
precisely what you just laid out about China using foreign capital to prop up its own economy and its own technology. And that's that one of the very first actions um, that Beijing took in its recovery investment was making it easier for foreign capital to flow into China. Um, so that in a way that foreign capital then ended up propping up a much more strategic recovery from China's perspective. Um, and also so that you know when then the world shook back into somewhat normal stability down the road, um, it'll do so with you know, China having acquired a new place in terms of capital flows. Um, and that approach is, I think, something that's pretty critical for understanding how China is going to, you know, going back to the question of how China is going to respond to this and where they'll take aggressive actions or not take aggressive actions in a tit-for-tat fashion against U.S. offensives or you know, defensive actions. Um, and that's that Beijing doesn't want to shut itself off from useful U.S. capital or technology. They want to be able to use this in a strategic way, um, not to have absolute dependence on it, but also be taking advantage of their integration with it. Which is a roundabout way of saying that when we see the tit-for-tat or the responsive actions from China, they're less likely to be directed at commercial players with which China has significant entanglement or involvement, um, therefore from which it acquires capital, from which it acquires technology, and more likely to be bluster-heavy or symbolic moves at the more tactical level while China's at the same time shaping a strategic framework for acquiring um, this money and this technology to its own ends. Beyond the executive order, uh, obviously there is a, um, there's a, I'll call it a propaganda war that's going on, Emily. And um, ultimately, if I can ask both of you where you, this will shake out. I'll go first when I'm allowed, David. Um, it's, a, it's a great question. I think maybe one of the ones that defines um, the the decade to come um, and certainly could be defining for a broad range of geopolitical dynamics. Um, my gut sense right now is that we won't see the, the sort of propaganda narrative and information competition um, go away anytime soon. Um, I think it may calm down early in the Biden administration, but I anticipate the the structural competitive dynamics that have been laid bare over the past few years um, are not going to change and that we'll continue to see a competitive U.S.-China um, dynamic moving forward and that it will, I think, play out um, at least initially and primarily through the, the propaganda and information campaign. And I think the, the current vaccine race is probably, um, you know, exhibit A in, in how that could be uh, continuing and um, a, a fixture in, in U.S.-China relations for some time. Emily, your thoughts? I'm going to agree with Nate on most fronts there, um, especially that the structural competition is going to continue no matter what. I may be a little more inclined to suggest that the propaganda contest under Biden, at least what China wants it to look like, is something that is much softer and much more muted. Um, I think you know China's language towards the U.S. has not been positive for decades, so a return to like normalcy and engagement or cooperation is not likely to see China's internal discourse towards the U.S. become favorable, but I think Beijing very much wants a calming in the rhetoric. 
um, and to revert to a situation in which they can maintain the structural competition despite a language of cooperation and joint stakeholdership. Um, what I do think we're likely to see is a new, a new phase in the propaganda in which China focuses on the need for the U.S. to make up for the past four years and to heal the wounds it's inflicted on its domestic system and on the international one. Um, so the U.S. as like a past bad actor that has to remake its image, because if China can really continue to hammer home that narrative, then it risks forcing the U.S., at least from an optics perspective, into focusing inwardly and focusing on engagement and not focusing on potentially um, competitive or conflict-oriented or divisive modes. And uh, we will be working to identify the various connections uh, that will allow firms to understand which companies uh, appear to be helping, assisting um, the Chinese military in terms of capital and and things that are related to compliance with U.S. sanctions. We'll also um, append to this podcast uh, a link to Hank Paulson's interview uh, just the other day on NPR Radio, which I thought was also insightful. Paulson, having had a lot of experience uh, dealing with China, both at Goldman Sachs and also as Secretary of the Treasury. And I want to thank you both, uh, not only for your time today, but again, some of the great information that you're putting forward so that firms can more effectively comply with various U.S. and international regulations. We have the privilege and honor at Rain of working closely with Nate and Emily and their firm, Horizon Advisory. And as a final sidebar, because there are significant social impact and social responsibility and reputational risk management objectives for many firms that are trying to navigate their way in terms of how they deal in business with China and some of the great companies that are being built over there, this information becomes invaluable. So, Nate, Emily, thank you again for your time and thanks for the continued assistance um, in helping enterprises know what they need to know. Thank you for having us, David. Thank you, David. Emily DeBriere and Nathan Picarsic are with Horizon Advisory, which assesses the commercial and security implications of China's approach to global competition. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. If you like what you heard today and want to know more, visit us at rainnetwork.com slash join. That's R-A-N-E network.com slash join. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.